welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 14 and episode 7. This is the Great Commission and we're turning today in our episodes to Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20 which are the final verses of Matthew's Gospel and we'll be looking at this wonderful statement of uh, Jesus's commissioning of his disciples, the 11 gathered together and as I'll explain to you probably others with them at the time. Well we're getting very near the end of uh, our studies we're getting very near the end of this amazing series of eight episodes where we've been looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And I hope you've had the opportunity to listen through to the earlier episodes and to get a feel of the bigger story that's taking place as Jesus is appearing in different places to different groups of people, different disciples for different purposes over different uh, particular periods of time. And we've reached the end of the material in John's Gospel. We came to the end of John's Gospel in our last episode, and we're going to do the same for Matthew's Gospel uh, and uh, indeed for Mark's Gospel as well in today's episode. And then in the final episode, we'll uh, look at the resurrection appearances that are associated with the ascension of Jesus that are recorded uh, in Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts. It really is an incredible story and it's thrilling for me to be able to go through the story of the, of the resurrection and tell it fully and help us to understand the significance of all sorts of different events that have happened. It's a very, very dramatic story and interesting to try and feel your way into the thoughts and feelings of those who were uh, encountering Christ in remarkable circumstances. As you'll remember if you've looked at earlier episodes, the focus initially was on Easter Sunday. That was a day full of action as far as the followers of Jesus were concerned, because there were a number of different appearances of Jesus to different people in different places at different times in the day. And that's what we studied in the first um, uh, part of this series. We looked at the amazing story of how Jesus met Mary Magdalene, one of the women disciples who'd followed Jesus from Galilee and was there at the cross, looked uh, and at the place where Jesus was buried and appeared at the tomb uh, at early dawn on Easter Sunday morning. It was Mary to whom Jesus revealed himself first of all. Then secondly to the other women in that group who had come to uh, the grave and to the tomb uh, of Jesus. Uh, and then through uh, material in Luke's gospel we understand particularly that there was an appearance to Simon Peter as well as an appearance to two disciples uh, going, walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the Emmaus Road. Uh, and, and then we see also in the Gospels um, how on that evening, as the two men came back from Emmaus, once they'd encountered Jesus on the Emmaus Road, they came back to tell the apostles and others uh, what had happened 
then Jesus appeared to a group of disciples uh, in the locked house and the locked room uh, in Jerusalem where they were meeting at the time. All that took place on Easter Sunday. Tremendously uh, exciting events and sort of unnerving events for the participants trying to work out what's happening and what's going to happen next and what's the significance of all this and just coming to terms with what it meant to encounter Jesus as resurrected from the dead was highly emotional and intense for them. They were overjoyed and very excited and thrilled but yet terribly uncertain about what the future had for them. Then John tells us that a week later Jesus appeared again in that same house, that same room, behind that same locked door in Jerusalem. But this time the one person who'd been absent the previous week when Jesus had appeared in similar circumstances was present and that was Thomas. And we looked at the story of Thomas and how his doubt was turned to faith. And then in the last episode we followed the narrative of John, who uh, showed us that Jesus went from Jerusalem after a period of time back to Galilee and appeared in Galilee. And the disciples had already made a decision to go back to Galilee uh, a few days um, after the second appearance of Jesus in the house in the locked room, which was um, a week after Easter Sunday. So at some point after them, then the disciples um, made their way back to Galilee. The Feast of Passover was ended. They needed to see their families, to um, perhaps earn some money, uh, take stock of the situation. They didn't live in Jerusalem. It wasn't clear what was going to happen next. And so John chapter 21 describes Jesus back in Galilee by the Sea of Galilee, where he encounters seven of the disciples while they were fishing. And Matthew concludes his story also in Galilee. So here is a second resurrection appearance in Galilee that is taking place. But Matthew has already alerted us to the fact that um, the disciples will be back in Galilee. Jesus encourages them to go back to Galilee. Before Gethsemane, before Jesus goes to Gethsemane, while he's in the upper room, um, he says, according to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 32, but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then in Matthew 28 verse 10, uh, in uh, resurrection appearance to the women, Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So Matthew also anticipates and teaches that Jesus encouraged them to go back to Galilee. So it's therefore not surprising that uh, this actually takes place and that the next appearance uh, is in this region. Let's read the passage. It's well known and it's very important. And it's not just a great commission, it's a resurrection appearance. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven 
and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the disciples were in Galilee. They'd had an appearance from Jesus, seven of them had, by the Sea of Galilee already, and they went to a mountain. It appears that Jesus had told them where to go at one particular time, and they go to a mountain. Which mountain is this? It's not the Mount of Transfiguration, if that is Mount Hermon, as I've indicated in earlier teaching, because that is not in the district of Galilee. The most likely mountain mentioned here is the Mount of Beatitudes, the place where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, with a parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. If we turn to Matthew 5 and verse 1, we'll see just a brief description. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, that mountainside was very significant. This is the place where he also uh, appointed the 12 apostles. If we read Luke chapter 6, we will see that and see it's the same location. And it's quite likely that Jesus calls his disciples to come back to this place. It was very near Capernaum and near the district that they had lived in for the three years that Jesus had been ministering in Galilee. And it would have had a symbolic significance for them because there was a sense in which they were commissioned on that mountain once before. They were commissioned as apostles and they were commissioned with a teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, which was the formation of the discipleship community, as we discussed in some detail when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount much earlier. And so they're back on a mountainside, probably the same place. And Jesus appeared to them on the mountainside. Then it says very interestingly, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It seems odd to think that some of the 11 disciples, the apostles, will be doubting Jesus, given that they've had a number of experiences of him. But there's an interesting detail here which may explain this. We can't be certain about this, but there is a detail provided by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that may be associated with this event. In the first section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul outlines resurrection appearances as historical evidence for the faith. And in verse 6, he mentions this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep as in death. Now, that's an interesting 
account 500 brothers and sisters, 500 disciples in the broader category, those who are following Jesus. Now, many scholars have suggested that that is also a part of this event here. It's actually the same event on the mountainside. And not only were the 11 there, which is the focus of Matthew's gospel, because he's focused on the Great Commission to them, but there was a wider crowd there, brothers and sisters. It's only in Galilee that you get that number of people easily gathered, 500 who would declare themselves to be the followers of Jesus at this particular time. So it might be that those who doubted were actually some of that wider group. We can't be certain, but it's an interesting point. And we do need to identify that that appearance before 500 people is one of the resurrection appearances. It could be a separate appearance, but I think it's likely to be the same event as this one. And Paul uses it for a different reason in his teaching. He uses it simply to explain to people, writing about 20 years after the event, that some of those who experienced Jesus uh, 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 in the resurrection are still alive and some have died, which isn't surprising if this is 20 years after the event that he is writing. And he's almost inviting his readers, if they have any doubts, to try and find one of those people and ask them about their experience of Jesus having been raised from the dead. And then comes the Great Commission itself. All authority in heaven has been given to me. That means, in a sense, that Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, has been given authority by his heavenly Father for his ministry. And the issue of Jesus having authority is a very strong theme of the Gospels. Matthew 7, 20, 29, he taught as one who had authority. Matthew 9, verse 6, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, says Jesus, when he pronounces forgiveness on an individual. Jesus gave his apostles in Matthew 10, verse 1, authority over illness, sickness, and evil powers. Jesus claimed to have the authority of his father in Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. The father's given tremendous authority to Jesus such that of his words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, says Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 35. So this issue of Jesus's authority is a constant theme of the Gospels, and particularly in Matthew. All authority has been given to me. Christ is going to be the initiator at this point of the process of bringing to birth the church, bringing to, into being the uh, preaching of the gospel, the discipling of the nations, and the salvation of people all over the world. That authority has been given to him. And he uses that authority to tell 
the 11 disciples, there will be a 12th added to them as, uh, as is pointed out in Acts chapter 1 when someone takes Judas Iscariot's place and his name is Matthias, but that hasn't happened yet. So the 11 disciples who are the original apostles, less Judas Iscariot, who's committed suicide, those 11 are commanded, therefore go. Here comes the point in the story where the focus is no longer going to be on the nation of Israel, which it has been predominantly up until this point. There have been some prophetic indicators that Gentiles are in mind, but they're going to go. They're going to go from Galilee. They're going to go from Jerusalem. They're going to be on the move. They're going to be spreading the message. Go and make disciples. A disciple is one who is taught, one who is a follower. Discipleship is a major theme of Matthew's gospel. We know that in order to make disciples, you first of all need to preach the gospel to them. And in Luke's account of Jesus commissioning the apostles uh, in his uh, encounter with them in the locked room in Jerusalem, it says in Luke 24 verse 47, And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So this making disciples starts with the preaching of the gospel and the good news, the proclaiming of Christ. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptism is going to be an important hallmark of discipleship. And then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So they're going to be formed into communities of learners, people who are going to learn about the faith. They're going to go to all nations. There's a progression in the Gospels. First of all, in Matthew 10 and in Luke 9, when the 12 are sent out to preach, they are called, as indicated in Matthew's account, to go to the lost sheep of Israel. It's a Jewish mission, particularly around Galilee. That's the first stage of the mission that the apostles are involved with, just around Galilee. Then in Luke 10... When the 72 are commissioned, the geographical location has changed. They've gone a bit further south and they're entering into Samaria uh, in the central part of the country and into Judea in the southern part of the country. And they're reaching the whole nation and also the Samaritan community who are not Jewish. And then now we've reached a different point. The gospel is going to go to all nations from a Jewish foundation, from a geographical location in Israel, it's going to spread east, west, north and south. Now, baptism is interesting here. The word baptism uh, implies to plunge or to dip, to immerse, to cover some, somebody with water. And of course, baptism was familiar to them because that's what uh, John the Baptist was doing in the River Jordan. The symbol of baptism had already become uh, part of the prophetic 
message of the Christian community. But it's interesting that the implication of the New Testament is that baptism is by immersion. Baptism is for believers, those who've made a profession of faith. This starts in Acts 2 verse 38. Peter states, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice here, repent and then be baptised. So the conscious belief and turning away from sin comes before the act of baptism, which indicates that in the New Testament, baptism is not designated or designed for infants. There are other ways of welcoming them into the family of God and blessing them as they seek to find their way. Baptism is for believers and baptism is preferably done by immersion, by plunging someone in water completely, because this is a sign of the end of the old life, a complete washing and the beginning of a new life, as is made clear in the first few verses of Romans 6, which talk about the symbolism of baptism. They'll be baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God is revealed in the New Testament unambiguously as three persons in one God. There is one God, but he is expressed in three persons who are united completely in their will and in their intention and in their collaboration and in their actions together as one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptised, there was a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, speaking about his Son. And then there was the coming of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And so we have the Father's voice, the physical presence of Jesus, and the representation of the Holy Spirit in the same event. The threefold nature of God was symbolised. And this is a symbol we see throughout the New Testament. And Jesus says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Until he comes again, that's the end of the age, Jesus is going to be with them, not in the form of his resurrection, his physical presence, but in the form of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which has already been promised. And that's articulated very clearly in Luke 24, verses 44 onwards to 49, and uh, will become very clear in Acts chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon them all. And in that sense, Jesus is going to be with them to the end of the age. So what kind of reflections have we got on this uh, very clear and decisive commission that Jesus gives? Well, the first thing to say is that we're still looking at resurrection appearances. This is a resurrection appearance of Jesus. This is the eighth out of ten recorded in the New Testament. Five took place on Easter Sunday. We mentioned those earlier. The sixth was to the disciples, including Thomas, a week later. The seventh was to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, as recorded in John 21, which we saw in the last episode and the eighth is here on the mountainside of Galilee, 
where the eleven are gathered, probably with a, la a large crowd of other believers who Paul describes as brothers and sisters. There are two more appearances still to be named and identified. We'll talk about those in the next episode. Another reflection is that discipleship is a major theme of Matthew's Gospel. We've mentioned this before. The wording here is very explicit. Make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And we've noticed that the structure of Matthew's Gospel has a lot of teaching in it and in, indeed has five major blocks of teaching. Just to remind you, Matthew 5, chapters 5 to 7 is the, is the Sermon on the Mount about the lifestyle of the kingdom. In Matthew 10, we have a lot of teaching about the mission of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, we have a number of parables that tell us about the growth of the kingdom. In Matthew 18, we have teaching and parables about the community of the kingdom. And in Matthew 24 and 25, we have extensive teaching about the future of the kingdom and the return of Christ. There's a very high proportion of teaching material in Matthew's Gospel that extends well beyond those five main blocks. So Matthew's focused on discipleship and his account of the Great Commission emphasises discipleship. And we need to pause at this point. The church is only healthy when the terms of the Great Commission are fulfilled. First of all, we're preaching a gospel of salvation. Secondly, we are defining entry into the kingdom of God and the church by baptism of believers. Thirdly, when we are forming people into communities of those who are learning and being taught to obey the teaching of Jesus, particularly in the teaching of the New Testament. This is what makes for healthy churches. Now, the Trinitarian nature of God, three, three persons in one God, is a constant theme of the New Testament. And it's referred to on a number of occasions. I've mentioned already the uh, example of uh, Jesus's baptism, where it's visually seen and audibly heard. But God described with three persons in one God appears from time to time in the New Testament in a number of different contexts. Here's one, for example, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's interesting. Three different persons, the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's a Trinitarian statement. There are quite a few other ones that we could name. Let's conclude our episode by putting this all in a wider context. A very decisive moment has been reached. The disciples are on the verge of launching the church, the new movement of followers of Jesus. It's going to happen very shortly after this time when they're back in Jerusalem and when they're praying together and when they reach the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. They're on the verge. But this all goes back to the beginning. 
And if we go back to the beginning of the calling of God's people, we go back well before Jesus. We go back into the Old Testament. We go back before King David and the monarchy of which Jesus is the inheritor as the son of David. We go back before Moses, who helped found the Jewish community in Israel uh, and prepare them to enter into Israel. We go back to the very founding father of the Jewish people themselves, Abraham. And God's very first promise to Abraham, part of the Abrahamic covenant as we come to know it, states in verses 2 and 3 the following. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now here Abraham is being promised a name that is a family, a son. He was childless at the time. His son Isaac fulfilled that. He was promised not just a name but a nation that from his family a whole nation would develop. That was the people of Israel. But finally and significantly for our purposes out of this nation of Israel it says at the end all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now all peoples on earth are blessed through Abraham's seed, his family and the Jewish people and the ultimate representative of the Jewish people which is Jesus Christ and through Jesus the message of salvation is going well beyond Israel to all the nations of the earth and so will be fulfilled this promise all peoples on earth will be blessed through you well that includes you and it includes me and here in this passage, Jesus is preparing the way. He is commissioning, unambiguously commissioning the apostles to go, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach, and to go to all the nations of the earth. That is the story of the church in the last 2,000 years. And that's why you and I, are able today to consider these amazing words and to see how they actually have been fulfilled over the subsequent centuries. I hope I'll welcome you back for our final episode uh, next time. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.